0: Well hello everyone and welcome to our Wednesday morning Bible study. We're so glad that you have tuned in and joined us here for our third part of the book of Hebrews. As we have said, this letter takes us on a journey into the mindset and the culture of first century Jews who had become Christians. Hence, this letter was written to Hebrews, those who were of Jewish descent, who grew up under the law, who grew up in the Jewish religion. Well, they had experienced something amazing. What they experienced was Jesus Christ. Many of them had heard about Jesus Christ for the first time, and they were being persuaded about Jesus, and, and many of them were not just persuaded, but have put their faith in Jesus. But yet in the first century, putting your faith in Jesus was not something that everyone liked. It was not the most popular thing that you could do. And two things that these Hebrews had faced, whether they had come to faith in Jesus or they were being convicted and com- and contemplating faith in Jesus, is that they were suffering pressure. They were suffering pressure from their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Maybe some from their very own families. And they were being pressured to go back into Judaism, to leave Jesus Christ and to go back into the Old Testament sacrifices and sacrificial system and the way of relating to God is laid out in the Hebrew Bible. And then when they became Christians, they faced another form, and that is persecution. And persecution in the first century, especially later on in the first century, would be led by the Roman Empire who would demand that Caesar would be king, and everyone would acknowledge Caesar as a god. But yet, the Christians refused to call Caesar Lord. They called Jesus Lord. And because of that, there was great persecution. So these recipients of this letter of Hebrews was facing great pressure and great persecution. And that was causing them to be conflicted about Jesus Christ. Was following Jesus really worth it? Is Jesus really who they said he was? You know, we've been raised up in the Jewish religion all of our lives. We knew that was right, and now we have these Jesus people coming and saying, now God is doing a new thing. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to convince the Hebrews that Jesus is Messiah. That Jesus is who he said that he was. And this whole letter is to make an argument from the Jewish scriptures. From the Old Testament, what we call our Old Testament. You know, to the Jews, it's not old. It's still their testament. It's still their Bible. But what we call the Old Testament, Jesus comes to fulfill the Old Testament. He comes as a fulfillment. The Old Testament is filled with pictures and types and shadows and anticipation of the coming Messiah. And Jesus was that coming Messiah. And the writer of Hebrews is writing in the face of pressure and persecution to convince these believers, to convince these Jews who are contemplating receiving Jesus and feeling conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's writing to convince them that Jesus is the true way. And that to leave Jesus is not to leave one religion to go back into another. To leave Jesus is to leave God himself. For God now speaks through Jesus. So we saw that in our uh, session one. And then last week when we went through the first uh, six chapters of the book of Hebrews. Well, tonight we're going to pick up on the argument that the writer is making. And we're going to be looking at chapters 7 through 10. Now, let me just encourage you off the bat to, when you're reading the book of Hebrews, to read it slowly. That's the key to reading Hebrews. If you try to read fast over Hebrews, you're going to miss a lot. You're going to miss the points that the writer is trying to make. And Hebrews, honestly, is not an easy book to read, you know, especially if you have someone that's new to the faith coming in that that does not have a foundation in the Old Testament. It, It can be very confusing So that's what we're trying to look at is putting ourselves in the place of these first century Jewish Christian believers that are trying to be grounded in their faith so that they will not be shaken no matter what comes. So especially when we've come to chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's very important that we have a foundation so that we know exactly what it is speaking of, because this is a very Jewish book. It speaks about a lot of Jewish, uh, Jewish topics in the book. So we have to have that understanding. So what we're going to do to begin with, we're going to define some terms. We're going to define some terms. So to understand, especially this section 7 through 10, you have to have an understanding of the Old Covenant uh, law, you have to have an old understanding of the old covenant priesthood and sacrificial system. And you have to have an understanding number one, so you know what the writer is talking about. Number two, you have to have an understanding so that you will see the point that the writer is trying to make. And the point the writer' is trying to make is that the old covenant, priesthood and sacrificial system had its deficiencies. It fell short. Of what was needed. But Christ comes along to show himself superior to that old order of worship and relating to God. And Jesus brings us into something new. Something that the old anticipated. But yet something new in fact. So I wanted to find a couple of terms here at the beginning. The first term that we're going to see is the Levitical priesthood. A great deal of these uh, passages talk about the priesthood. And it's comparing the priesthood of the Old Covenant with Jesus' priesthood. Now, the priesthood of the Old Covenant was what is called the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is made up, or was made up, of the descendants of Aaron, who were from the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of the tribes of Israel. So because the descendants and, and the priesthood, not anybody could you know, be a priest. It came down through descendants and through family and through a certain tribe. And that tribe was the tribe of Levi. So that's why we call these descendants from Aaron of the tribe of Levi who served as priest in the, in the tabernacle and temple of God. That's why we call this the Levitical priesthood. Well, the writer's going to mention that these Levitical priests were human priests. They were human priests. They they were born. They lived. They died. These human priests were not perfect. These human priests had to make sacrifices for their own sin. So when it talks about the human priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, that's what it's speaking of. Then you have the high priest coming out of the Levitical priesthood. There was the supreme religious leader of the Israelites, and that was the high priest. And the high priest had a very important duty every day on what is called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement came one time a year for the nation of Israel. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make an offering for the sins of the whole nation. So the, Levitical, so the high priest from the Levitical priesthood you know, would lay his hand on an animal, would convey the sins of the nation onto the animal... Uh, sacrifice the animal and go and sprinkle the blood of the animal on the mercy seat that God may look down on Israel with mercy. So this was a very important job. The high priest could only go into what is called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. We'll talk about that in a moment. He, he could only go in there alone by himself one time a year on the day of atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. So what Hebrews is going to do is compare the Levitical priesthood with Jesus' priesthood and the high priest in Israel to Jesus, our high priest. The next term we have is the law of Moses or the old covenant. The law of Moses or the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant was the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And he only made it with the nation of Israel. You and I, as Gentile believers... We're never under the Old covenant law. We were never under the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given to Israel, and Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses to Israel, and he was born that they would be free from the law of Moses. And that's one of the uh, and that's one of the issues in modern Christianity. and if we don't interpret the Bible correctly, if we don't interpret it from the New Testament back into the old. If we don't look at the New Testament through the lens of Jesus, uh, then we'll go in and cherry-pick some Old Testament laws and say, well, we're supposed to keep these laws. The church, the Gentile believers, were never under the Old Covenant law. That was given to Israel to guide them as a nation. Does that mean the law is worthless and we should never read it? No, there's a lot we can learn from the law. There's a lot of types and pictures of Jesus in the law. So the law has a place. But understand that even with the place that the law has today, it's to point people to Jesus and that we can see Jesus in the law and to see how God used the law to bring Israel to salvation in Jesus. Now about the law or the law of Moses, we call it the law of Moses because, you know, Moses went up on the mountain and God gave Moses the law. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant of the covenant that God had with Israel at Mount Sinai. So Moses was the mediator. The law established the priesthood. The law established the form of worship at the tabernacle and the temple. So Jesus comes, and Jesus is a, under a different priesthood. Jesus is offering different sacrifices. Jesus is a different high priest. So the law... Was changed. Then we have uh, animal sacrifices for sin under the Old Testament. Uh, animals were sacrificed, and blood of animals were shed for uh, an atonement for people. And there were, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of sacrifices and animals that, that we could we could go through. But just to keep it simple, animals were sacrificed for atonement. Animals they had to be continually sacrificed. Because, again, they fell short of truly cleansing the people. It could cover sin temporarily until you sinned again. But the animal sacrifices could never take away sin. could never take away sin. So these animal sacrifices were temporal. They had to be continual because they didn't take away sin. They didn't achieve the intended end of making people holy. And then finally, the tabernacle. Hebrews is going to compare an earthly tabernacle to a heavenly tabernacle. Or an earthly sanctuary to the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, The tabernacle, and I have a uh, a little outline here. The tabernacle, let me show you the the picture first. This is a picture uh, of what an aerial view. This was literally taken in uh, Israel back in the old covenant days, by the way. They had drones back then. Um, but this is what an aerial picture of the tabernacle would look like. There was a, a fence that went around it. Uh, and there was a tent that was covered uh, in the middle of it. Outside of that, there was the place where they would make... Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll stand up and show you. Uh, here, there, this, this was the altar. The altar was where they would uh, offer the animal sacrifices. And then they had a laver where they would wash. And then they would go in this tabernacle. And there was two sections in the tabernacle. Uh, the first section... Um, was the holy place, and it contained three articles or of furniture. In fact, I think the next slide, yeah, we have that. So this was the altar that we saw on the outside. This was the, the laver where they would wash. Inside the holy place, there were three articles of uh, furniture. There was the table of showbread, the consecrated bread that the priest would have. There was uh, the golden lampstand or the, the menorah uh, where they would light uh, candles every day. Then there was the altar of incense where they would burn incense. Then there was a veil. There was a veil separating this last place called the most holy place. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box uh, that, that that contained uh, the jar of manna from the wilderness, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and the, ta- and the tablets that the commandments were written on. On top of that, it was sealed with a lid called the mercy seat. It was sealed with a lid called the mercy seat. So that's where the priest would take the animal sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat so that when God would look down at his covenant, he would look at them through The blood of an animal and have mercy. And what we're going to see, and that's very important because what we're going to see and what's important in our covenant is Christ entered the holy place for us. Not an earthly tabernacle, not one that looked like that, but the heavenly tabernacle. And he entered into the most holy place and he sprinkled his blood on the heavenly mercy seat. And Jesus' blood wasn't like the Old Testament animals. It didn't run out after a year, and he had to be sacrificed again. It was there. He obtained eternal redemption for us. So just as God would look down upon the nation, he would see the blood on the mercy seat, and he would have mercy on the nation. Today, the blood is still on the mercy seat. And when God looks down on your life, on the covenant, not of stone, but the covenant of his son, Jesus Christ. He looks at you and I through the blood of Jesus on a mercy seat and looks at you and I with grace and mercy. So this is the tabernacle of Moses. Again, there was an outer court with the altar and the laver. There was the inner courts with the candlestick, the bread, and the uh, incense, altar of incense, and then the holy of holies. So that's a little brief description about what the tabernacle is. And again, the tabernacle was good. It was ordained by God, but it had an expiration date. You know, these animal sacrifices, they were good for a time. They were ordained by God, but they had an expiration date. The Levitical priesthood with the high priest, they were good for what their purpose was. They were ordained by God, but they had an expiration date. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that everything that we had in the Mosaic Covenant, even the Mosaic Covenant itself, had a purpose and was ordained by God, but it had an expiration date. So that's very important to understand. That expiration date happened when Jesus Christ came. And now God used to speak to Israel by the prophets. But in these days, the days of the end of the Old Covenant, in these last days he's spoken to us, by his son, Jesus Christ. So, those are a few need to know terms that I thought we needed to talk about first so we can uh, you know, look into the scriptures a little better. Now, let's, let's go ahead and go into our chapter. So, chapter 7 and 8, 9, and 10 is what we will quickly cover. We won't, we won't have time to you know, go through a lot of these verses, but I do want to point several things. Now, talking about the priesthood, one of our definitions was the Levitical priesthood. Well, as we touched on last week, here's the problem with Jesus being a priest over Israel. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe where David came from. So Jesus had no earthly right to be a priest because he was born in the wrong tribe. But however... Jesus is a priest. And not only is Jesus a priest, as Hebrews says, he's he's our great high priest. Well, if he couldn't even be a priest according to the Levitical priesthood, he certainly could not be a high priest. So how do we solve this problem? How can Jesus legally be high priest when he was of the wrong tribe? When he was of the wrong priest, he was not of the tribe of the priesthood. Here's how. God changed the priesthood. God brought an end to the Levitical priesthood. And he established a new priesthood that was not like the Levitical priesthood. And this new priesthood was patterned after an Old Testament person. And this Old Testament person is an unusual person. He only shows up in in one story and then mentioned in another passage in Psalms. And his name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a strange figure, but yet very important. But Melchizedek was a picture of a new priesthood. Melchizedek was a priest not like The Levitical priest. In fact, he is referred to as a priest before there even was a Levitical priesthood. So before the Levitical priests were on the scene, Melchizedek had already come. And he was a priest. So the Melchizedek priesthood came before the Levitical priesthood. Well, Melchizedek, we don't know anything about him. We don't know his genealogy. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know who his mother was, who his father was. So his priesthood, as of the records we have, has no beginning and has no end. That's a pattern for Jesus' priesthood. Because Jesus was a priest, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. So God changed the priesthood. That's why it's kind of amusing when you read the book of Hebrews and you listen to, and I remember, you know, being told, well, over in Israel today, they're, they're training priests. They're trying to find out who's from the tribe of Levi. They're doing DNA tests and they, they want to establish the priesthood. Well, modern Israel can establish the priesthood, but it will not be recognized by God. And in fact, it would be a slap in God's face because the Levitical priesthood has ended for a better priesthood, for a priesthood not that was temporal, but that was eternal. Jesus' priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, is forever. So, to say God is going to go back and establish the Levitical priesthood would be to end the priesthood of Jesus or to say that the priesthood of Jesus was just temporary. So God can go back and establish and establish the Levitical priesthood with human priests. That is contrary to everything that the scripture says. Oh, well, you know, many, many people in Israel and even many Christians are looking forward to Israel rebuilding the temple. They're going to rebuild a third temple Well, rebuild a third temple would be a slap in the face of Jesus Christ. Because the first tabernacle and first temple was destroyed by God. That he may establish a new temple and tabernacle, which is his church, his eternal tabernacle. You know, well, Christians also teach that one day in in the millennium, there's going to be a a rebuilt temple and Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem and there's going to be animal sacrifices, it's not going to be any more animal sacrifices. Jesus was the once for all sacrifice to put an end to all sacrifices. You can't read the book of Hebrews and think God is going to go back and restore anything from the Old Testament. To do so would to do away with Jesus. That's why this book is important even to us today, so that we can properly understand and interpret the Word of God. So, for them it was critical because God has done a new thing through Jesus Christ. God's put an end to the Levitical priesthood. He's put an end to the office of an earthly high priest. He's put an end to the law of Moses. He's put an end to the animal sacrifices. He's put an end to the earthly tabernacle. And He's established the new covenant the law of the Holy Spirit, the one sacrifice for sins forever, the one high priest under a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And he dwells in a temple today that is his body, the church. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is writing about. So in chapter 7, and usually I read a lot, and I won't read a, as much as I normally do, but chapter 7 begins by talking about Melchizedek. If, if, if this is confusing, I, I told you that Hebrews is a little bit confusing. If this is confusing, go back and rewatch, Read the Scriptures slowly. Um, but God has done a new thing. He's put an end to the old thing, and He's doing a new thing through Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. So chapter 7, verse 1, This Melchizedek was king of Salem, or Jerusalem, pre-Israel Jerusalem. He was king, and he was priest of God. So there was no Levitical priesthood established when Melchizedek was on the scene, but yet he was a king and a priest. That's almost unheard of. It says, he met Abraham when returning from defeat of the kings and he blessed Abraham. So for Melchizedek to bless Abraham, he had to be greater than Abraham. Abraham. Verse number two, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So for Abraham to tithe to Melchizedek, Melchizedek had to be greater than Abraham. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also the king of Salem, Jerusalem. And interpreted, the literal interpretation is king of peace. So this is an important guy. He's known as the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, the king of peace. Then it says, he's without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. So just like Jesus, no beginning, no end, no one created him, no mother, no father, no beginning of days or end of life forever. And then it says, he remains a priest forever. Forever. And so he's going to contrast that with the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood, again, was lesser than the Melchizedek priesthood. Because the Levitical priesthood came out of Abraham. You know, Isaac and, and, and Jacob descended down to the 12 tribes. But yet Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So establishing the Melchizedek even from the beginning, was greater than the Levitical priesthood. It talks about how, you know, the the Levitical priesthood, that they received tithes from the people. They received tithes from the people. Well, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So in verse 11, it says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood. If perfection, 7-11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people, established that priesthood, if it could be attained, why was there still a need for another priest to come? In essence, he's saying that perfection could not be attained through the Levitical priesthood. It fell short. Now here's verse number 12, Hebrews seven twelve. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He said, if the first priesthood could if you could attain perfection under the first priesthood, there would be no need for the second, there would be no need for another priest to come after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. For if the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. It says in verse 13, He of whom these things are spoken is said to belong to a different tribe. Because Jesus belonged to the tribe of Judah. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear the Lord descended from Judah. The Lord descended from Judah. So it says in verse 16, One who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry... Jesus did not become a priest by his earthly ancestry. But verse 16 says, But on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, because he's like Melchizedek, no beginning, no end, he remains forever. Verse 18 of chapter 7, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, and a better hope is introduced. So as good as the law was, as good as the priesthood was, it wasn't perfection. It was actually weak. It had deficiencies. It could not do what needed to be done. So chapter 7 talks about this priesthood. The exposition about Melchizedek. That Melchizedek's priesthood is a higher priesthood. I want to read one more, um, verse 26. If you look at on verse 26, chapter 7. Such, the high, such a high priest, Jesus, truly meets our need. One, a high priest who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart, exalted above the heavens, unlike other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus doesn't have to do that. For he sacrificed for the sins of Once for all, when he offered himself. So Jesus Christ is a better high priest. He offered himself once for all. So chapter seven begins with talking about Melchizedek and ends talking about Jesus being a high priest who is holy, pure, blameless, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Then we go into chapter 8, we see the true tabernacle and the new covenant. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says this. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Jesus is king today. He's not going to be king one day. Jesus is king today. He says we have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne. So he is king and priest just like Melchizedek, sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not not by a mere human being. It goes on to say, if you look down in verse number five, it says, they serve at a sanctuary, the earthly priest, they serve at a sanctuary which is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. So the true tabernacle was not the earthly tabernacle. The true tabernacle was the heavenly tabernacle, not made with hands. In verse number six, but in fact the ministry Jesus received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator. Jesus is superior. The covenant is superior. It says the superior one, the new covenant is established on better promises. Verse seven of chapter eight: For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, then no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said. And now He's going to quote from Jeremiah. Jeremiah thirty-one contains the prophecy about the new covenant. So from Jeremiah, I mean, from uh, Hebrews chapter eight, verse eight down through verse number twelve, He speaks of the new covenant here's the major difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was conditional and it was based upon the actions of the people. God said to Israel, if you will do these things, then I will do these things. If you do good and keep the covenant, then I will bless you. But if you do wrong and forsake the covenant, then I will curse you. So it was based upon what Israel did. And if we know anything about the Old Covenant, testament story of israel it didn't turn out good at all because man if it was up to man he would mess it up every time so if anything is ever conditional upon you it could you're going to mess it up because you're human and we're by nature sinful so that's why the covenant is a better covenant established upon better promises so a new covenant so he said the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful and I turned away from them. So because they were unfaithful and God turned away from them, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And it's not going to be like the old covenant. Verse 10 says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, saying, Know one another or know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. So under the old covenant, God responded to the actions of the people. If they did good, God blessed them. If they did bad, then they were cursed. It was all based upon their performance, their ability to keep the law. The new covenant is not like that. The new covenant is when we respond to God's work. God says in this prophecy in Jeremiah, I will do this. I will do this. I will. I will forgive their sins. I will do that. And the only requirement is faith. The only requirement is faith, not works. So we respond to what Jesus did on the cross by receiving and putting our faith in Him, by receiving His work. And God does all of this for us, not conditionally based on anything that we have done. Then chapter 8, verse 13, by calling this covenant new, He's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, what does that mean? You see, Hebrews was written during the time between Jesus and AD 70. And in AD 70, a very important event happened that not many Christians even know about. But it's very significant. Jesus talks about it a lot. The disciples warn about it. In the New Covenant writings. And here, what happened in 8070 is the Romans came into Jerusalem. They sieged the city, they overcame it, they destroyed the city, and they utterly destroyed the temple. And since 8070, there's been no temple, no tabernacle, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no way to fulfill the old covenant requirements of worship. In 8070, God brought a total end to the whole Old Testament religious system when the Romans came in and destroyed. Now, it was rendered obsolete when Jesus came because when when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Nothing counted then, but it was still going on. You know what Israel did when the veil was torn? They put it back up. They kept offering sacrifices. They kept going. It was obsolete God wasn't working through that anymore because Jesus had died. So that's why he says here, he says the old one is obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And within just a few years of this writing, the temple would be destroyed. And it would, and that old covenant priesthood with everything would disappear. So he's showing the new covenant and the superiority and the promise from the Old Testament scriptures of the new covenant. Now going into chapter 9... He's going to compare the earthly and the uh, uh, heavenly uh, sanctuaries. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. It had a tabernacle that was set up with a lampstand and a table and its consecrated bread. All those things that we showed. And then it goes on to talk about the most holy place, uh, where it was. It talks about in verse number 6 how the priests entered regularly to carry out their ministry. In verse number 7 of chapter 9, the high priest entered into the inner room once a year. We talked about that when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on the day of atonement. And then it says in verse number 8 of chapter 9 that the Holy Spirit, by them having to continually do these things, continually offer sacrifices, continually atone for the people, continually, continually, continually over and over and over and over and over again, the Holy Spirit, verse 8, is, says, was showing that the way into the most holy, the true most holy, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first was still standing. And then he talks about how these sacrifices that were offered could never clear the consciousness of the worshiper. Because here's what happened. The people would sin and they would give a sacrifice But yet they would sin again and because that sacrifice was insufficient they would have a knowledge of their sin and their sin was ever before them. But what Jesus' blood should do is clear our consciousness from sins that we've committed and put our focus not on sin but put our focus on the sacrifice that took away our sins. And it could take away our sins because of the blood of Jesus. So, In the earthly and sanctuary, this chapter ends or transitions to talking about the blood of Christ. In verse number 11 of chapter 9, Christ came a high priest of good things that are now already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. He did not enter by the means of blood of bulls and calves, but he entered the most holy place of heaven once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption not temporary cleansing eternal redemption for us so it talks about how much greater the blood of Jesus Christ is than the blood of the the Old Testament sacrifices and then it goes on to talk about a will um, you know and how a will is in effect when somebody dies Um, you can read through that read through that carefully and then it gives an example beginning in verse number 19 of chapter 9 about Moses, uh, how Moses proclaimed every command of the law. And when he proclaimed the law to the people when it was first given, he took uh, the blood of calves and he sprinkled it among the people. And here's what Moses said. At the I'm going to slow down a little bit. At the giving of the law, the old covenant, Moses reads the law. He takes the blood of an animal and sprinkles it. On the people. And here's what he says, verse 20: This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to keep. Now that phrase, this is the blood of the covenant. That phrase should be familiar to us Christians, but not familiar because of Moses. Should be familiar because Jesus was in a room with his disciples eating the Passover. And he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant. This cup, my blood, is the new covenant. See, Moses took the blood of animals at the reading of the first covenant, sprinkled the people. But when you sprinkle somebody with something, you know, it gets on the outside of them. That was a picture of a outward, temporary cleansing. When Jesus takes the cup that night and he says, this this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He says, drink it. And when you drink something, it goes on the inside. The Old Testament blood could only offer a outward temporary cleansing. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from the inside and makes us truly clean and truly pure. So it goes on to talk about In verse 24, Christ entered the sanctuary not with human hands. Um, He entered heaven itself. Uh, Verse number 26, Christ would have had to suffer many times, you know, if he would have entered the earthly tabernacle. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So again, Jesus did not enter the earthly tabernacle. He entered the heavenly tabernacle tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary to do a greater work in a greater sanctuary. Then we come to chapter 10 talking about Christ's superior once for all sacrifice. Chapter 10 says the law is only a shadow. Chapter 10 verse 1, the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming. Not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices offered repeatedly year by year Those sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped from being offered if they could make the people perfect? The worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins therefore when Christ came and this is very important because many of many Christians still relate to the blood of Jesus just like the old covenant Jewish people related to the blood of animals so we think we have temporary cleansing you know I've I know people that that they've told me you know when I was Coming up, I believe when I got saved, Jesus forgave me for all of my past sins. But now to get forgiveness, I have to keep asking for sin. Let me say this: it's not wrong to acknowledge your sin. That's healthy for us. You know, as a Christian already forgiven, it's not wrong to acknowledge our sin. It's not even wrong to ask God to forgive us for that, because that if if that helps us, then that helps us, And and sometimes that's healthy to acknowledge when we've messed up. But when we look at what Jesus has done for us, Jesus isn't up in heaven. For you as a Christian, if you've received Jesus and you are covered with the blood of Jesus, when you sin, he's not waiting for you to ask forgiveness again so he can say, okay, I'll forgive you now. Okay, you've sinned. Well, I'm going to hold that sin against you until you ask forgiveness. Okay, you've repented. You've asked forgiveness. I'll forgive you again. Now many of us have been taught that that's how we live. That we have to continually be repenting, continually be asking for forgiveness whenever we sin so God can forgive us again. If we have to continually be repenting, continually be asking for God to forgive us, if if we don't think God has forgiven us until we ask him to forgive us over and over and over and over and over over again, then we have no more faith in the blood of Jesus than we did the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus was the once for All sacrifice. And this sacrifice makes us, and this this makes some people nervous, but it's the truth in Jesus, not in our flesh, but the blood of Jesus makes us perfect before the Father. When you are covered with the blood of Jesus, you are covered in Christ's blood and his righteousness, and you are made perfect in him. That's good news. I love that. You are made perfect. Because if you were not made perfect, Jesus' blood would be no better than the Old Testament sacrifices. It says, those same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year. If they could, they could never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would have not stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have, if those sacrifices could have made you perfect, the the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. Well, they were not cleansed once for all. And if you and I as Christians, if we are not cleansed once for all, then the blood of Jesus is no better than the blood of a bull or a goat. You are cleansed once for all, or the Scripture is a lie. You are cleansed once for all by the blood of Jesus. Then it says... And they would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. If they were cleansed once for all, they wouldn't be guilty. They wouldn't have felt guilty. And I know we're still taught to be sin conscious. Now, should we go out and sin like crazy? Absolutely not. But should we, when when we sin and when we mess up, should we be burdened down with guilt and shame? No. Why? Because Christ has already been offered For our sins. And it's good to acknowledge our sin, but instead of asking God to forgive us like He hasn't already, we should thank God for the forgiveness. Say, God, you know I've messed up today, but God, I thank you, Lord, for Christ's sacrifice. Because without His sacrifice, Lord, I, I would be lost and hopeless and guilty before you. But Lord, because of Christ's sacrifice, even though I messed up today, I know that blood cleanses me. Lord, and I know your Holy Spirit is here to work in me, to, to make me better. But God, I thank you that, that as, as bad as I messed up today, as, as bad as I went out in sin, Lord, I know there's no condemnation in Christ. and Lord, help me to keep my eyes focused on Jesus Christ and the gospel and, and your blood and acknowledge your blood that was shed for me for the, for the forgiveness of all of my sins. That's a better way to pray and say, God, I messed up so bad today. Lord, I don't know how you could ever forgive me. God, I I, 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 I beg you to forgive me. Please, God, forgive me. Forgive me. We're not acknowledging Jesus when we do that. The better way is to acknowledge what Jesus has already done for us. So when we are under the blood of Jesus, we're cleansed once for all. We've been made perfect And we can come near to God. And we should have no more guilt or consciousness of sins. Now, in a practical way, if I sin against my brother, I I should go and make that right. Because sin has, there's a relationship this way between us and God, then there's a relationship this way. You know, And just because God forgives me, I may need to go to my brother and ask for forgiveness from him and acknowledge I've done wrong. You can't just say, well, I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want to, and I can sin as much, and I can do whatever against people, and nobody can tell me anything because I've been cleansed. That's not the attitude of someone who acknowledges the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. We know that when we sin and when we mess up, God does not forsake us. When I sin and when I mess up, God, does not, God is not holding that sin against me. I know that when I sin and when I mess up, it does not break fellowship. That's one thing that I've heard all my life. Well, When you sin, it, break, it breaks fellowship with God. In your mind, you might think it broke fellowship. You might, feel, you might feel guilty. But if it breaks fellowship, the blood of Jesus is no greater than the blood of a bull or a goat. These things matter. They matter in our lives. So that's why I've always said many Christians in the new covenant are living with an old covenant mindset when it comes to forgiveness in the blood of Jesus we act like the blood of Jesus is no better. So yes, you know, we do still sin. But no, we are not condemned. Yes, we need to acknowledge our sin and acknowledge Jesus' sacrifice that has cleansed us from sin. And yes, when we sin, we should go and make it right with our brothers if we have sinned against somebody else. But we should never think that when we sin, God has left us or that sacrifice is no good anymore. For Jesus' sacrifice is better. Verse number 8 of chapter 10. First he says, Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with. God's heart and his desire was never Old Testament animal sacrifices. It's as though they were offered in accordance with the law. What he was really looking for was the obedience of his son to offer himself. He says in verse number 9, He sets aside the first to establish the second. Verse 10, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Holiness is not something that originates with us. Holiness comes through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. For all, then in verse eleven he says, "Day after day, high priest stands performing the religious duties again and again, which those sacrifices can never take away sin." Verse twelve, but when this priest has offered for all time the one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. One sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time waits for his enemies to be made his footstool for by one sacrifice. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Those who are coming to faith. He is, by one sacrifice, has made perfect forever. The Holy Spirit testifies. And then he's going to quote the Old Testament Jeremiah again. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, write them on my minds, and their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And verse 18 says, And where these have been forgiven, where sins have been forgiven through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. That means you don't have to go back and make another sacrifice for sin. You don't have to go back and, and ask for forgiveness again in, in order that you thank God you know, hasn't forgiven you. You know, it's, it's really, no, no offense to anybody of the Catholic faith, but of the Catholic faith, you have to go to confession regularly. And you have to confess your sins in order to get your sins forgiven. So you go to confession, you confess your sins to a priest. Then you leave and you go back the next week and you confess your sins to a priest. Leave and come back and confess your sins to priests. priest. And it's this consciousness of sin all the time. And a consciousness of confession. And I'm not cleansed unless I'm confessing. And I'm not pure unless I go confess to the priest and ask for forgiveness and, and do Hail Marys. A lot of Protestants would say, would laugh at those Catholics. say, look how wrong they are. They have to go to confession and confess to a priest every week. Well, we do the same things. Except we go and confess to God every week in order to be forgiven. It's the same mindset, which comes from the Old Covenant continual sacrifices. But where forgiveness is by the once for all sacrifice, there is no longer a necessity for any other sacrifice because it has made you perfect. It's perfected forever. It's made you holy. The blood of Jesus. Now, again, does that give us an excuse to go out and sin or never acknowledge that we've messed it up? Absolutely not. It's healthy to acknowledge our mess-ups. It's healthy to acknowledge our sin, even as a Christian, but it's unhealthy to approach God as if the blood of Jesus hadn't already cleansed us. So it's healthy to acknowledge our sin even before God. Even though our sin's forgiven, it's it's healthy to acknowledge that. It keeps us humble. And it puts the focus back on Jesus. And we say, God, you know, I have sinned, but I thank you Lord, that Jesus atoned for my sin. And thank you, even though I may feel guilty right now, that there is therefore now no condemnation to you. So that's the wonder. That's the wonderful thing about the new covenant. Think on those things. Don't see the blood of Jesus as the same as the blood of bulls and goats. Don't see the new covenant as, don't see the way you relate to God as the way that they related to God. You relate to God totally differently. And that should change our relationship with God. Now, does that alleviate us of human responsibility? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does that that mean we'll never suffer any consequences if we go out in sin? Absolutely not. But that does mean that the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus is exactly what the scripture says it is. And it's done exactly what the scripture says it's done. So the writer is establishing that all of these things are, are better. Christ's sacrifice is better, the blood is better, his priesthood is better, he's a better high priest. There's a better tabernacle and sanctuary that the earthly things just could not do it. So we're going to continue on. And and the book of Hebrews kind of takes a different different tone. And it talks about persevering in faith. Because as we said, um, they were facing pressure and persecution. So as he's writing to them to convince them that this is... Christ is the fulfillment. And outside of Christ, there is nothing else. You know, he's going to encourage them to persevere in these trying times. So we're going to come back next week and look at chapter 10, verse 19, all the way through the end of the book. And we're also going to address one of the most abused scriptures. Scripture that's been taken out of context to abuse people that there's ever been. And that scripture is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And we're going to show you what Hebrews 10.26 really means. And why it doesn't say what many people have believed that it says. So we're looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sticking. I know these lessons are kind of long. I really don't like to teach a long time. But there's just so much in these scriptures to cover. I thank you for sticking with me. Again, if you ever need to stop halfway through and pick it up later, that's why we record these. Um, so that you can take your time to watch them, to watch little bits uh, at a time. That's why we provide notes for you to go through the notes, read the scriptures. God is good. Jesus' sacrifice is better than we could ever imagine. So we thank you again for joining us this week. Hope you got a blessing out of this study. More than anything, I hope it puts your eyes upon Jesus. So we pray you have a great day. God bless you.